My scripture reading this morning is Psalm 22. Uh, in this psalm, just very briefly, the first part of the psalm is the uh, passion of Christ. Uh, it's the sufferings of Christ on the cross, calling out to God, uh, prophesying David is looking forward and putting these words in the mouth of Christ. Uh, then it abruptly switches halfway through and describes the results of that passion and suffering, uh, which is the kingdom of God spreading throughout the whole world. Uh, and so this is about Christ and his kingdom. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws, for you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hand and my feet. I count all my bones, they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me, O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. When he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Those who go down in the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. And thus we have Psalm 22.
Let's come before our God in prayer. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, what can we say after a week like this one? When our bodies and spirits are weak, you are strong. You have not forsaken us, but you have upheld us. You have kept us, and you have planted our feet firmly on the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who died for sinners. We praise and we thank you for that, that you call us who were not your people, your people, that you call us who were sinners, your people, that you name those things that are not as if they were. Those who were not a people are now your people. Those who have not received mercy have now received your mercy. And even though, Father, we struggle every day of our life with the infirmities of the flesh, with the sinful nature with which we have to struggle our whole life long, you have not forgotten us. You remember that we are dust. We are feeble and frail. Like the flowers of the field, we fade and die, but your word is forever. So, Father, plant us on your word. Give us patience and faith as we wait for you. We pray for all of those who are learning to wait, uh, waiting for doctors and for insurance companies and for referrals and for everything that needs to happen before someone can go see a specialist. And we pray that you would smooth the way, that you would open the doors, that you would get the help that's needed, that you would bless Roger and provide for him and give healing and strength to Maggie, uh, help uh, Susan with her back and help the exercises to help it heal and please Open the door for her to get to the physical therapist to be able to help with this. And watch over Crystal this week as she goes into surgery. Guide the hand of the surgeon and give her her eyes, give her health and clear sight. And in all of our weaknesses, Father, teach us to lean upon you, to look to you. We pray that you would bless our congregation, bless the leaders of our congregation We pray that you would always, whatever happens in the future, keep our eyes focused upon you and upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conform us to his image. And may everything be counted as dung that we might know you in the power of your resurrection. And Father, watch over us today. Guide my lips, bless the reading and preaching of your word, and give us ears to hear and to obey. All of those that are traveling, we pray that you would bring them home safely that you would protect us from slander and the lies of wicked men, that you would guide and direct our steps and forgive us our sins, bless our president and our governor with wisdom and sound judgment and righteousness, and cause us to look up when we are down. And let's pray together. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, My text this morning is Luke chapter 17, just two verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. I spent a great deal of time pondering what to say after a week like this. The thing mostly on my mind is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, It is, uh, I've discovered providentially God 
brings us right to the text that is necessary to comfort our souls, which happens to be the next one uh, in the series that we're going through. And this text very, spoke very strongly to me this week. And I have to plead with you the infirmity of the flesh. Uh, I am, uh, my, my body is exhausted. And so bear with me if I stumble around or stare off into space a little bit. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The Jews in Jesus' day knew what trouble was. They understood sin, pain, fear, worry. The threats around them were very, very real. The scripture tells us that all were in expectation and waiting for the kingdom of God. The time was here. And then they see Jesus. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's healing uh, the, the, the sick. He's healing lepers. He just healed ten lepers in the passage before us. And so the question on everyone's mind was this. Is this the kingdom of God? Of course, they would think about Isaiah chapter 2. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his path. He says, He shall judge between nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And as those words are being read in the synagogues, the Roman soldiers are marching by with their shields clanging and their swords and their spears. Isaiah goes on and says, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And in another place, he says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Wonderful descriptions of what was termed the kingdom of God, sometimes called the kingdom of heaven. It was on everybody's mind, which is why Jesus spoke of it so often. In fact, when they described his teachings and summarized it all in a nutshell, it says Jesus went around and began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet, he goes around dressed as a peasant. He doesn't have a home. His teaching is stuff that no one has ever heard before. He rebukes the leaders of the Jews. And so they're asking Jesus about it. Is now the time? Is this the kingdom of heaven? Earlier, John the Baptist, while he was in prison, asked, Is, Are you the one that was to come or are we looking for another? And Jesus said, Look at what's happening. And perhaps here the healing of the lepers was the instigation. For the scripture did say that the kingdom would be marked with signs of healing. And Jesus did plenty of miracles. And the question before these Jews when they came to him was, Okay, you heal. Healing is good. Meanwhile, the Romans are still holding us in bondage. What are you going to do about that? It all comes down to this question. What do you want? We're human beings. We have wants and desires in common with human nature. We want to be free from bondage. Of course we do. We want the freedom to serve the Lord without fear all the days of our lives. We want to be free from disease, from hunger. No one enjoys malicious hatred. We want to be free from that. We would love to be free from slander, from political enemies, from loneliness. As human beings, we 
long for all of those things and more. And we say, where is it? And we despair. If only someone would come and raise an army. If someone would fix this. If someone would have better policies. If someone would come and build a great temple. If only we could fill the churches with thousands of converts. If only we could raise the money, get the right guy voted in, build up the food bank, stop poverty and greed and racism and hatred. Yeah, all of those things are good. We should strive to be a voice for those without a voice. We should stand up for justice to those who are oppressed. We should feed the hungry. We should fight against racism. Scripture tells us all of that. What is it that we ultimately want? And what do we do when the voice is silenced, when the world is mocking, the future is blocked, the bank accounts are empty? The temptation is to say, what about the kingdom of God? Where is that? Jesus answers them, it doesn't come with observation. You're not going to say, oh, look, there it is. And you're not going to say, oh, look, it's over there. I'd like to spend a few moments talking about that. He says it's not with observation. The kingdom of God is not of this world. You can't point to any institution, any nation, any political party, any Supreme Court decision, any law passed, and say, hey, that's the kingdom of God. Look at that. The kingdom of God is coming upon us. Jesus says you can't do that. I've quoted this before, but Graham Goldsworthy says the kingdom of God is God's people under God's king in God's land. And then it also describes that kingdom as the rule of freedom, of liberty, freedom from bondage, the bondage of sin and misery. As human beings, we ask, how can both of these things be true? How can God's law be exalted and liberty be exalted at the same time? And I'm going to give you a kind of a silly example, but I want you to follow me with this. You can end murder. It's very simple. You put everybody in a cage and don't let them have any access to each other. If only they had locked Cain and Abel both up in cages when they were born, Cain would never have killed Abel. The problem is people don't thrive in cages. And then you have to ask the question, who watches the keepers of the cages? And then you have to say, isn't the cure worse than the disease? What good is safety from murder if the body is wasting away in a prison? And we also know that the heart doesn't change locked in a prison. You lock a body in a prison and the hate that you are trying to cure simply grows more and more fierce. Everyone in Jesus' day knew that. The Pharisees had their solutions to the problems in the world and when they were in power, they slaughtered the Sadducees. The Sadducees had their solution, get rid of the Pharisees. And so when they were in power, they would get rid of the Pharisees. And every generation, the hate grew more and more and more and more intense. And this is why righteousness could never come by the law. The law is good, Paul says. But the heart is lawless. The cancer is deadly. Those who are experts on criminal justice have to debate and decide how to weigh human dignity with the necessity of public safety. 
There's a lot of discussion about how to stop crime, how to punish crime justly. And when public fear increases, there's always a demand for more and more cages. Always a demand to lock more people up. But when the cages increase, lawlessness always increases. And to make it even worse, we live in a day of 24-hour news cycles that thrive on making people afraid. It compounds a thousand times when people fear they build more cages. And then they start calling these cages the kingdom of God. How does the kingdom of God, with its description of peace and prosperity and safety, each man under its own vine and fig tree, how does that operate? If people are constrained to righteousness by the law, there is physical safety, but you can't describe that as righteousness, joy, and peace. And Paul in the book of Romans describes the kingdom of God as righteousness, joy, and peace. All you have with righteousness by the law is bondage, and bondage always increases hatred. But we're always tempted to say, yes, they passed the right law. Yes, the Supreme Court made the right decision. Yes, the right political party won. And then we say, that's the kingdom of God. But compelled prayers, compelled church attendance, compelled righteousness isn't righteousness at all. And the more we strive to compel, the more hatred and unrest and rioting and fear grow. And pretty soon you get to the point where you beat a young woman to death for wearing her hijab wrong and call that the kingdom of God. Every dissenter must be crushed. What do you want? We have to be careful how we answer that question. Do you want law and order? Here's a surprise. Every human being wants law and order. We all do. And we all want freedom. But only the kingdom of God can bring law and order and freedom. Because that's exactly what the gospel is. And that's why Jesus said it doesn't come with observation. You won't find it in the things under the sun. The church rejoiced in 313 A.D. when Constantine passed the Edict of Milan, making Christianity legal. And very quickly they were mourning as more and more and more lawless, godless people flocked into the church. And you could argue whether it was worse or better before or after. The kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. He says it's within you. And that's difficult it's got two different interpretations both of them biblical both of them lawful and i think jesus used it on purpose and left it to us to debate the first interpretation means it isn't in outward actions alone but it's in the regenerated heart where christ dwells by faith Absolutely true, and it fits the context perfectly. The kingdom of God is within you. The church confesses that Christ governs his church by his word and spirit. The kingdom of God, Paul says, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. As that increases in the human heart, the kingdom of God spreads. And as people are converted and the gospel is proclaimed, righteousness, joy, and peace spread. 
In that way, you can have law and order and freedom. Because the kingdom of God changes a man's heart. What if the heart could be changed so that people learn to hate murder? And they not only hated murder, but they hated the malicious hatred that starts murder to begin with. What if they hated slander and envy and injustice and their deepest longing was to love their neighbor as themselves? Micah says, God has showed you what's required to do justice, to love mercy. The word translated mercy is covenant faithfulness, said, to do right by each other with compassion and to walk humbly with your God. But all of that happens in the heart, not in the actions. You can compel outward actions, but the kingdom of God is in the heart. If the heart is changed, wow, wouldn't that be great? The police could be abolished. Laws would no longer be needed. Judges could become artists and musicians. Everyone would sit down under their own vine and their own fig tree and they would rejoice. This is what Paul means in 1 Timothy when he says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly, the sinners, the holy, the profane, the unholy and profane, the murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, or slave traders, liars, perjurers, and if there's anything contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. In other words, the law was given because these people are on the earth. It's for the lawless. If the law is written on the heart, you don't have to have laws written on tables of stone. The problem is, we're not all righteous. And so law is still necessary. Outward actions still need to be restrained. But it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you when the heart is changed. But there's another interpretation of the kingdom of God is within you. It can be translated from the Greek legitimately the exact same way. It's almost as common as the other way. It could be translated, he is among you. The kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. He is among you. In other words, the Pharisees were looking for signs of power when they should have been looking for a person. You want a king? Look to Jesus. You want law and order? Look to Jesus. You want peace? Here is Jesus. You want joy and righteousness? Here is Jesus. When the world is falling apart and everything seems to disintegrate about you, the question is the same, but the answer is clarified. What do you want? What are you looking for? Paul spent his whole life searching for the kingdom of God according to the ways of the world. He describes it. He said he could have had confidence in the flesh. Philippians chapter 3. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, the strictest, most conservative interpretation of the law. He did not tolerate sin. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. 
concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But there's something that he inherited above all of that. He inherited the curse of Adam. Death. And he saw that because he realized no matter how hard he worked at it, his heart was full of covetousness and envy and hatred and strife. And so he says, what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And as I've done a lot of soul searching this week, and my dear wife asked me many times, what is it that you want? There's the answer. There's only one. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. But Paul says for that it takes suffering. The fellowship in his suffering, actually. He was despised and rejected. He was falsely accused. He was found guilty without a charge. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. He was left to die. And then he rose from the dead. The power of death was broken because he took it all upon himself. When he ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit on the church because he purchased us body and soul to be his own with his own precious blood. And he did it all that we might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so we follow. We look to him that we might rise with him. As Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And like Paul, this means we learn throughout this life that all of those things we tend to be so proud of might actually turn out to be dung, only fit for the dung heap that we might gain Christ and be found in him. That's the kingdom of God. It is within you. It is Christ. It is Christ within you. And the day will come when that reality of Christ in you will burst forth on all creation and lions and lambs and plowshares and music and art and gardening and choirs of angels singing praise together to our God. But we're not there yet. Until that day, we do have our greatest treasure, Jesus and him crucified. What do I want? I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. And I want everyone else to know him with me. And here's the crucial point. Everything else is secondary to that. If it isn't pointing to that, it's dung. Throw it out. Why do we do what we do? We sing the hymns that we all might know Christ together. We confess the confessions that we all might know Christ together. We teach Zoom Bible studies and join in on, on sermon audio and listen to sermons when we can't make it that we might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We study the scriptures so that we all might know Christ. We come to public worship so we might know Christ. 
We come to the sacraments that we might know Christ. I heard a message this week that broke my heart. I heard from someone that the message that they've always received from the church was this. God doesn't want you here. You're not his kind of person. God doesn't love you. Your sins leave you outside the circle. You're not welcome here. And I will continue to do everything in my power to fight against that every day of my life. For that's not the voice of God. I would rather have you know the voice of God, Jesus Christ, who says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. The voice of Christ doesn't say, What are you doing here? I don't think you belong here. You aren't our kind of people. Do you hold the historical grammatical method of interpretation or the redemptive historical method of interpretation? Have you read twists in Latin yet? Are you one kingdom or two kingdom? Are you infralapsarian or superlapsarian? What's your view on the decrees of God? We have to make sure you're the right sort of people because only the right sort of people are welcome here. And as the centuries go by, the box gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you're only left with a tiny handful of people who are holy enough and smart enough and wise enough to enter into the kingdom of God. But that's not the voice of Christ. He looks at us and says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He says, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us and show us his ways. So yes, doctrine is important, but only if it leads you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Other than that, doctrine is dung, fit for the dunghill. Much of what passes for doctrine today in the church is empty wrangling over words. I get so impatient with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new books published every year that contribute nothing to knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection. And while we wrestle over pointless words, we forget the immense love of God in Christ, who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Outside of that, there's only strife and hatred and unrest and arguing over nothing and division. I read something this week that it really got me and stuck with me. Then in all of the parables of Jesus Christ, he only named one person, a beggar that everybody else ignored. Nobody knew what his name was, covered with sores. And the whole world will probably not be able to tell you the name of the Pharisee that invited Jesus to supper, the leader of the synagogue of the day. But the whole world knows the name of Lazarus. Yes, Jesus came to save sinners. My prayer for each of you and for myself continually is this. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ 
which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ is so immense, so tall, so wide, so broad, and we tend to narrow it down more and more every day to only the right sort of people. And every time we do that, we're no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now unto him who is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, keep us near the cross. May we never put confidence in our flesh, in our learning, in our pedigrees, in our debates, our disputes, our squabbles. But may we forever be at the foot of the cross where our sins are washed away, that we might know you, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, if by any means we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.